Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We got a great show for you today. Our guest is the founder of Copper Beach Financial Group. He's got over 30 years' experience in planning, wealth management. His practice emphasizes the interplay between asset protection, tax efficiency, and family governance that are critical to developing a holistic generational family wealth strategy. Welcome to the show, John Priest. Hey, guys. How is everybody doing today? Oh, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful day in LA. John, you're live from New Jersey outside of Philly. Yeah, it's a little rainy here, Well, <laughs> but it's okay. To be expected. It's great to have you. Your focus and your firm's focus, you've been doing this for a while, this concept of a family CFO. Talk to me a little bit about what that means, how you work with people, and then we'll start to get into all sorts of topics and ideas. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. I'm going to take you back beginning of my career, which really kicked my current company in the gear. And it was really working with affluent families. And, and if you go back to the 80s, and maybe some of the listeners will remember the 80s, anybody who was in the financial services business sold products. They either sold mutual funds, they sold annuities, they sold insurance, et cetera. So they were really involved in a world that they had to buy something to kind of control their financial affairs for their future. Back in the early 80s, financial planning was a buzzword. It was just started to come about. People started to get interested in understanding what that really meant. And a lot of the companies, and particularly my company I worked for was Cigna, they really had a good handle on the demographics. And we all know about those wonderful baby boomers. I'm one of them. There were 78 million of them that Cigna looked at and said, this group is going to be moving very quickly through their life and into retirement. And there's a lot of stuff needs to be done along the way. And planning was a key issue, and a lot of firms weren't doing it. So Cigna developed a unit out of Bloomfield, Connecticut, and I was part of that team. There were 600 of us strong across the country, and we were hired to be financial planners. Now, basically what that meant back in those days, they were it was not a product issue. It was more a vice issue. So they went around to business owners pretty much throughout the country, and they did roundtable discussions and said, hey, we're going to build this unit. We're going to hire these professionals, and they're going to give you this advice and these issues. Is that important to you? And pretty much everybody said, we're in, because a lot of people didn't know where their world was going. They didn't know about taxes that much. They didn't understand inflation as an issue. So they, they really started to focus on, you know what? We need someone to guide us. However, Cigna took a little different twist. They were always in a business owner marketplace. And business owners are a whole different aspect of the financial services world as a focus, very specialized. But our group, that 600-member group, were trained extensively on business succession strategies to estate planning issues, to fringe benefit designs, deferred compensation strategies, how to invest money for the long term, tax issues, inflation issues. So we were really thrown in this educational platform early on in my career, and I was inundated by a lot of knowledge. So we went out to the marketplace as professionals after a two to three year training. It was a long time, two year training. So we were released in the marketplace and we started to meet up with business owners. And my first large client that I bounced across through a chamber function actually, 
was a big company out of Philadelphia worth well over $150 million. And they liked me a lot and they brought me in to be an advisor. But I realized early on in my career that that was really something I wasn't really ready for. These worlds are very complex. These affluent families have a lot of moving parts, a lot of issues, a lot of lack of coordination between their advisors, a lot of fragmentation in their advice that was given to them. So they, they were struggling. And I realized that I didn't have even my skill set at that time with the team behind me that I had. We weren't ready to handle that type of a net worth family. So early on in my career, I started to recognize that these high net worth families, and when I say high net worth families, it's typically between 10 million and 150 million net worth families that are pretty much in the marketplace throughout the country. They really weren't getting a lot of key advice in a lot of areas. So I started to realize back then, I really needed to develop a practice that focused on that type of a structure. Now, when I talk about structure, if you know anything about the affluent world, there's something, a term we use is called the family office. That's a term that people in the the affluent world are familiar with. But really what a family office is, these very affluent families hired advisors to work directly for the family. And they put a building on the corner of a street and they call it the family office. So all the advisors reported daily to the matriarch or patriarch of the families and worked their finances, invested their money, developed uh, long-term strategies, estate planning, et cetera. So I started to investigate these family office models. And I didn't really quite understand what it was or how it was developed, but I decided to pick up the phone and call three or four family offices to see if they would take a call or take an interview with me because I was doing a little research. And I talked to the Pitcairns, the Kennedys, the Rockefellers, the Hardys, the Jacksons, very high net worth families in our region here. And to my surprise, they allowed me in and they said, John, we're more than happy to talk to you. And I spent a lot of time with these family offices trying to figure out what worked and what didn't work. And I realized that there were very successful families, a lot of net worth, a lot of great, great investment strategies, but I recognized their planning was a little weak. What I mean by that is the financial planning from generations to generations was lacking a little bit. I started to realize, well, why is that? These families have all the wealth in the world they need. Why is it fragmented? And when you really understand this world, you're dealing with people. (laughs) I tell jokes all the time. People are people and they are inconsistent. They have egos. They have different ideas and thoughts. So to kind of herd this family together was a difficult chore. So imagine trying to get people to agree on one topic or one direction. It's very, very hard when you deal with 30, 40 family members, especially if you have a privately held business, it becomes very, very complex. So I realized as I looked at my practice development through the 90s, I wanted to get real good at that piece. In other words, I wanted to be able to represent that family as a CFO. And that's the term we use here at Copper Beach because most folks don't understand a family office. So we kind of relate it to a family CFO because most people that run companies recognize they have someone that runs the company, that CFO. He does all the financial forecasting and projections and cash flow models and all those wonderful things that make companies grow. But they didn't have that in our family side. And I normally have a conversation with new families and I say to them, you run a very successful company, you've been a great CEO or CFO, but you really didn't pay attention to your family. We need to develop that same strategy on the family side because they're linked. Because if you look at a lot of the net worth in a lot of these families, it's in their businesses. It's in their real estate programs, in their businesses, not in their stock portfolios per se. 
So basically, I started to see this weakness, and I said, I need to be very, very good at that. So I developed my company, and the Copper Beach name was a name that we picked out out because the Copper Beach tree is the tree they use for the family tree. And if you understand the Copper Beach tree, it it grows very slowly for a very long period of time, and the roots get very, very deep, and they get strong. And we relate that generationally to our families. So that picture of that Copper Beach tree we use as a visual for our families to understand that it's a generational decision you're making with your money. It's not just about you. It's about your kids, your grandkids, and beyond. Now, most of the families you come across don't get to that level, believe it or not. But when we first meet them, we kind of force them to look at that because when you look at wealth and be able to transfer it, it gets to be a pretty big number, a lot of these families. And a lot of it goes away in in bad planning amongst family members. They don't get along. If you look at every study, 70% of the wealth is lost to the third generation, not because of taxes, not because of bad estate plans, it's because the kids don't get along or the family doesn't get along. It's almost scary. There's a proverb that says shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And basically a study was done for wealthy families and they did research and found that wealthy families lost wealth every third generation because the value didn't shift or the communication to the family members didn't work. And all of a sudden it gets wasted and it goes down and it starts all over again. So our focus has always been with our families is to prevent that from happening that third generation. So we put a lot of support into our families in communication and structured processes to make sure that everybody's on the same page. If they're not on the same page, we ask a lot of questions why they're not. Let's talk about that process a little bit because I think this is really interesting because so many people, they spend 90% of their time focusing on investments and building their business. And so many people are entrepreneurs or they become wealthy and they spend 80 hours a week working on running a company, building it. And and once you've gotten to the point where William Bernstein calls it, you've won the game, you have some wealth. So for some people, that means a million, some people it means 10 or 100. But you have some real wealth, people spend all their time thinking about the investment side, which is important. But like you mentioned, money and everything surrounding it with a lot of families is such a taboo topic. No one wants to talk about it. So let's say someone comes to you, they just sold their business 10 million or they're getting ready to, or they have a successful business that's sloughing off a lot of capital. And they say, I have this family, I got three kids. Where do you begin? Walk us kind of through the conversation of how this process starts. Our process is unique, but it's not complex. The first step is we go through an interviewing process. We only work with families that are referred to us, to be honest with you, because the families we work with understand our role and they communicate it very well to that family that they want us to meet. So the first process is meet the folks and have a discussion. And we have a series, probably about 50 questions we ask in that interview. And depending on how they answer those questions is whether or not they fit our model. So very early on in our process, we discover with that new family, whether they have a desire or a wish to set up this type of strategy for their families. That's the first step. So let's assume for a moment they say, you know what, John, this sounds great. I'm interested in finding more about what you do. What's the next step? Then we do an audit. Now that audit is critical to the process because it allows us to discover where we can help them financially. So what my team does, we collect all their data, tax returns, financial statements, insurance documents, everything about them financially we collect. And it's a challenge to do that but we are successful at getting that done over a short period of time. Once we get that data and we look at it, 
I have a team here. My son's my JD on staff, Michael Paris. He does all the audits with his team and they rip through everything. They kind of rip the client apart, if you think of it that way. And what would they produce after that is a anywhere between an 80 to 100 page report that shows that family, here's what your world looks like. We looked at your wills, your trusts, your finances, your taxes, and here's what we observed. In that conversation, we give them issues that they have that are not positive, and we have issues that are very positive. And we go through a discovery with them, and we share with them where they need some help. And we ask deep questions along with that presentation as well to get more detail on why they've done certain things. I'll give you an example. Meb, when you sign your will, how do you know it was the best will you could sign? You don't, because you trust your attorney. What if your attorneys designed it incorrectly? How would you know that? Because remember, you're no longer here. What impact does it have to your family? Your wife now just now has this will that says it does X and it might not be the best thing for your family. So our clients are signing documents. They're signing trusts, wills, buy-sell agreements. They're signing on to buying assets and it might not be right how they're buying it. So we find that the audit discovers where they've made these errors and we share with them, you could have done something differently. And at that point, they get pretty excited if they get what we're trying to get to with this audit. And they say, okay, all right, what's the next step? And then they hire us to be their family CFO. So it's a discovery via questions that opens those gates for discovery. And again, we have several, <laughs> we have hundreds of questions. And it really depends on the client who we're speaking with, how we open those questions. Like, for example, I just had an interview with a family a while back and concerned about walling off assets for his kids. He wasn't very positive about some of the people in his life. He says, listen, I'm not going to give him anything. I'm just going to give Max and whatever it might be. And I, and I said to him, I said, you know what? You can do that. And believe it or not, we hear a lot of families are concerned about that responsibility or lack of that responsibility with money with children. But my first question I asked him, I said, how do you want to be remembered? And I stop. And that opens up a gate, believe it or not, that gets people to think about how they want to be remembered. And the point I try to make is you don't want to die twice. And I don't mean to be crazier, but when you die the first time, it's a physical death. But you don't want to die from memory. So that second piece becomes very, very important. How do you want to be remembered? What do you want to set up for your children? What do you want to set up as it relates to charities or foundations? How do you want the world to view you once you leave the earth? That's a two, three-hour conversation a lot of our families because we get very deep into their heart of the matter and see where their passions are about how they want to drive their wealth. And that opens up a lot of, a lot of gates, as I said earlier. So again, it depends on the family. It depends on what road they want to take. We go down that road. And the document you have, and we'll link to this in the show notes, listeners, is a really thoughtful, I think, exercise. It's called 10 Eye-Opening Questions to Protect Your Wealth. And the number one you just mentioned was, how do you want to be remembered? Because so many people, and we see this daily in the press where, whether it's Prince or some celebrity, athlete, actor, politician dies, and they have no estate plan whatsoever. And so a lot of people say, whatever, I'm dead. I don't care. It's not my problem. Well, do you want the government deciding where all your money goes? Do you want it public? It's something a lot of people don't think about because we're all mortal, obviously, but I'm going to live forever. But the reality is usually not the case. Yeah. And that interview process, we discover that firsthand right at that first meeting. If we have a client that says, listen, I really don't care about my kids or the generational stuff, they're not a client. 
They're not a prospect for us. We're not interested because you have to love your family to work with us. And I know that sounds kind of corny, but that's the focus we have. If you're concerned about the generational wealth transfer, you want to take care of your family generationally, it's important. I had a case years ago, going back 20 years ago, where as a cowboy in Utah, and Jake was an interesting guy. He was worth about $150 million, I believe his net worth was. And he was 92 years old. His wife was about 90. And they were the sweetest people in the world. We set up all these trust designs and generation skipping trust to transfer wealth generationally. And after it was all done, we're at the lawyer's office. And Jake sat in his chair and he said, John, he said, I understand where the money's going. But how do I get my values in that trust? How do I get my generations to understand who I was and the values that I had that created this wealth to make them successful in the future? And I said, good point. It was an amazing exercise. He hired a firm out of Hollywood to do a production. Uh, it was a 30-minute video. Back then it was video. Video that had his history of who he was and how he created his wealth the people he cared most about. And I'm telling you, Meb, if you saw this, you'd cry your eyes out because it was so well done. And the requirement in the trust was that before you got a distribution from this trust 100 years from now, you had to watch this video or whatever technology is going to be used 100 years from now and understand who grandpa or great-grandpa or great-great-grandpa was and who created the wealth. So you get into these really interesting conversations with families that they care about that stuff. The ones who don't, we're not interested in dragging them across the finish line. They want to have to get there. So you can't force people to do this. You can only educate them on it's an option and it's something they should consider. We have another family we just worked with where he's a very successful business owner. He does chemicals across the world. He's a fascinating guy. But he's the rainmaker. He has a son in the business who's younger. He's in his 20s. Smart kid. And I said to him, if you died tomorrow, what would happen to your company? And he looked at me and he said, great question. I don't know. Well, if your company's worth $40 million, because that's what it was worth, and there's no strategy on transferring that value, what does that mean to your wife and then to your children? He goes, good point, John. He said, I don't know the answer to that. Then he said, you know what? My son is really smart, and I think he could just step in and take over the business and run it. I said, okay, so let me see if I understand what you're suggesting. You pass away tomorrow. Your wife inherits all the stock. She knows nothing about your company, but your son now runs the company and he's got to get permission from mom on what to do inside the company. How's that going to work? And he went, great point. So make a long story short, we're working on putting a plan in place to protect that value. Because remember, it's about value of something you created over the last 20, 30 years. Why would you, as you said earlier, waste it to taxes or waste it sending it to the government when you just kind of design the plan? So here's how we're thinking. We're going to build a board of directors for his son. Outside members going to be on this board. They're going to help run the companies for his son in case something happened to him. We're going to sell the stock to a trust and be sure a trustee runs on behalf of his wife and run everything smoothly. Now, when you look at that very quick process we went through, that was hours upon hours of discussion with the attorneys, with the CPAs, with the team of advisors that made that all work. Now, one thing that we do very straightforward and very focusedly is that we collaborate. We have, I think, a lot of great ideas, but we also recognize the family has a team of advisors that are respected. So when families bring us on, we don't replace anybody, which is very important. So they have a good financial planner, they have a good insurance agent, they have a good investment guy, lawyer, CPA. That's what we require. We need good people to work with to represent this family. 
So we get plugged in as that CFO role and we collaborate. So as I said a few minutes ago, that decision made with that family was a collaborative effort on the advisors that came up with this idea and strategy to help this client through that discovery. And now the client has less stress, the son's protected, mom's protected, and the success of that family transferring to that generation is hopefully going to work pretty well. That's how we kind of look at the world as it relates to some of these strategies. But it's a focus and it's got to be committed to by these families or it's you just can't drag them through this. Does it make sense? I think it's important because a lot of people, they have these various just spoke advisors, whether, you, hey, I got my CPA, I got my investment guy. Some families probably have dozens of investment people and the lack of it being sort of holistic, I think is often a big issue for a lot of people. But then going a step further, the lack of a holistic vision of what the future is of how this, I mean, and look, I've been through it personally. I mean, my father had passed away and we, despite having daily discussions on the phone in person about investing, finances, all sorts of thing, had never had a discussion about at least more than 10,000 foot about his vision for, he grew up in a a farm with no running water, sort of a farmhouse. He built this career and became successful, how he wanted to pass along, how he wanted to be remembered. Didn't even have a will, or at least one we could never find. So everything you're discussing is something I've been through personally in, in the process of the public, private, estate and everything else. But as I spent a lot of time with education, I'd love to hear you talk in depth about this concept of multi-generational set up because you and I, we're in the financial world. All of our listeners are interested in investing and personal finance, but a lot of people aren't. How you advise these families that say, hey, look, you mentioned a couple people have $100 million. How do you then build that structure to where it's not going to be gone in one generation by your crazy son and grandson and nephew and their crazy person they married and all this other stuff. How do you start to build that process? That I could answer it 15 different ways because <laughs> depending on the client itself, but let me give you some parameters. When you look at those larger estates, they have one concern always. Is it when I get above my unified credit, and I'm assuming all your listeners know what that is, right now it's a 22 million plus credit that we get upon mom and dad passing and wealth transfer into the kids. So the first 22 million under current law goes to the kids tax-free. Beyond that, there's a tax of 40% on every dollar above that. So let's take example of that $100 million estate for simple math. So the 22 million gets put aside tax-free and the rest of the 78 million is taxed at 40%. So that 30 plus thousand dollar, $30 million tax bill or whatever it ultimately ends up with, is a voluntary tax. The clients don't have to pay that. Now, when I bring that up in a conversation, they go, what? I thought I had to pay an estate tax. Under the tax code, you do, but also they give you ways not to pay it. And what most people do, they go through estate planning processes, they go through level one and level two, and they stop. There's three levels beyond that. And the last level is zero taxation. So there's ways that you can get zero taxes paid on your estate and not give it to Uncle Sam. Well, that's a three-hour conversation on how do you do that? So I'm setting this up to talk to you about the process we use to get them through that zero strategy. So the first thing we talk about is let's try to eliminate that estate tax you have now. Let's do things creatively under the tax code to do things now. And I'll give you an example. 
There's something called a defective trust. It's a special trust that allows, under the tax code, a business owner to sell his company to a trust at a discount. Now, I won't get into the weeds, but I'll give you a technical piece first, just as a scratch on the surface. You could take your company, S Corporation, LLC, C Corporation, and recap the stock. All I mean by that is you take your stock and recharacterize it. You make one voting share and 99% non-voting shares. You could take those non-voting shares and sell them to this defective trust. Uncle Sam under the tax code allows you to discount that transfer because of lack of marketability. Because remember, non-voting shares are non-voting shares. You can't market. It's not worth anything. And you have no power to make any decisions. So Uncle Sam says, we'll give you a 35% discount. Maybe you could push it a little bit more depending on the structure. But 35% discount when you move that to that trust. Say you took a $10 million company, discounted it by 35%, freeze it, and you sell it to this trust. Now when the company sold down the road, somewhere down the road, all the gains and the success of that company are now in this trust out of the estate for tax purposes. That's just one idea that you can do. So right off the bat, if you leave these large estates, you can reduce their value by 35% under the tax code. That's just one idea. The other idea is there's charitable structures. There's so many different ways you can move money. We call it the tax fence. You want to take a dollar from the taxable estate and move it to the tax-exempt estate, and there's several processes that we could take you through to do that. But that's the process we do first. And again, I, we could talk five hours on just five of those ideas. But the idea is to do that. So the first step we do is get that estate to be reduced out of that taxable structure. Once we do that, then we look at these trusts as a way to move that wealth generationally. Now, what we often find in trust documents is this, and it's not wrong, it's just how the world works. Attorneys usually draft documents and say, listen, upon age 30, 35, 40, we're gonna distribute assets out of this trust. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let's assume you have a $20 million estate today. And I hope everyone understands the rule of 72. What that rule is, you take the number 72, you divide it by a, a growth rate that you're assuming on your assets, let's say 10%, divide it by that number, and it tells you how many years it takes that asset base to double in value. So if you were $20 million today and you get 10% growth on that asset base, it's going to double in seven years. So when you look at growth of estates, we do projections show people they're worth $20 million today. They could be worth $150 million at age 100. But that wealth's got to go someplace. So we t teach them to think a little differently that they're going to be worth a lot more money down the road than they are today. So let's go back to that scenario. The trust says at age 30, 35, and 45, all that money gets distributed to the children. Let's assume it's a $50 million estate and there's one child. So $50 million goes to that child outright. Are you okay with that? Son or daughter would get $50 million outright with no controls, with no education. What happens to that wealth? It gets lost versus setting up a discretionary trust that says, I'm going to leave it in trust for this child that they have access to that trust for asset protection purposes. Now, what I mean by asset protection, let's assume that first scenario, we send money out to child number one or that single child and they get $50 million in their hands. What happens if they're in a bad marriage? Tell me what happens. What happens if they're on opioids? Tell me what happens. What if they're not in a good position health-wise, mentally? Tell me what happens. Do you want your children held in that position to be responsible for this chunk of money and they're not capable of handling it for health reasons 
or just maturity reasons. So when we discuss these generational structures is that we talk about keeping things in trust into perpetuity, but have access for certain objectives, health education, maintenance and support, or other venues. Because how a trustee works in these trusts, especially the discretionary trust, they have the power to make distributions. Now, my trust, and I'll share you personal, my trust is a discretionary trust. My trust is called a SLAT, a Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. I won't, again, get into the weeds, but that trust is designed to be irrevocable. So whenever I put money in that trust, it's out of my estate and it's asset protected from, we call them in-laws and outlaws, and it's protected. But my wife is the income beneficiary and trustee of that trust. So through my wife, I can get assets in that trust if I need to. It's a very unique part of a trust design, but it works really, really well. So my wife is control of that trust, so I've got to be really nice to her if I need money, if you don't get that picture. But anyway, and there's provisions in there for divorce issues and whatever. And again, I won't get into the weeds, but it's a very specialized trust to allow that lifetime access if I need it, but it's irrevocable out of my taxable estate and out of the eyes of creditors. So now my wife runs that trust. Now she passes away. My son, Michael, steps in, who's my JD here on staff. He now acts as that trustee over my two daughters, who are wonderful young ladies. One just got married. The other one's probably right behind her in the next few months. And they're married great guys. But that's today. What do those guys look like 20 years from now? I don't know. So assets are being held in this trust for the benefit of my girls. But here's the access they have. They can get money at any time they need, provided they have a good reason for it. And Michael has, again, those discretionary powers, or my wife currently, to make a distribution to the girls. But not full distribution. So let's say, for example, my daughter Alicia wanted to buy a car. My wife right now can go into that trust, take money out, and she could buy a car. Not a big risk, but she could do that. But my wife would be able to control it if my daughter says, hey, mom, I want to open up this business. I need a million dollars. My wife says, hold on. A <laughs> million dollars for what now? Let me let me take a step back on this. So it really controls the risk of having the children make poor decisions on that wealth that they have access to. So now it stays in trust. Let's go back to that scenario. My wife could loan money to my daughter. Now, why is that a great concept? Because my daughter now, we could loan the money to her. Let's say she wants to buy a house. We loan her $100,000. She has to pay it back. That is a great education to teach your young children how to be responsible to pay loans back. But yet she's paying herself back because she's part owner of that trust. So I call it, and look at those 10 questions, Meb, it's the estate bank concept. Where you create an estate bank for your children in these trust structures to allow them to access money if they need it for certain reasons. So it's an interesting idea, but it's powerful families work with because it allows them to educate their children, control their assets from protect from creditors, out of the tax environment, and it goes on for generations and generations. And it never pours out. Now, a discretionary trust by nature, the trustee has full power to make full distribution out of that trust if he or she feels necessary to do so. So it's not that it's never going to pour out. It's really up to the trustee for that provision. Now, which brings us to another question. That's the biggest challenge our family has is who's going to be the trustee? Who's going to manage all this? Who's going to take that very important role for my children? And it's a very, very good question. And we have deep conversations on how that flows. Typically, we look at having a personal trustee, either a family member, 
sister, uncle, you know, friends of the family, a lawyer or a CPA, someone who really knows the family well and shares the family values. But beyond that, we look at institutions like trust companies to take that role administratively. But we make it co-trustee. So the the institution might be the the administrator of making sure the checks get cut, bills are paid, whatever it might be. And as a family trustee or friendly trustee, kind of guiding the kids from a value-based standpoint. So it gets complex when you look at these trust structures. But if the goal is to transfer that wealth to third and fourth generation, that's what folks do. And hopefully that answered some of your questions on that. Yeah. So let's say you get the structures in place and you're thoughtful about all these things and you get sort of the right people and the right incentives involved. How do you then sort of say, look, I want to be really thoughtful about building a family that buys into this and understands what's going on so that... A, they're not totally financially illiterate, and B, that I'll get to B in a second. How do you deal with the fact that, how do you build this knowledge base and get the buy-in so that, is there like a curriculum? Do you encourage annual meetings? Is there sort of a, how do you start that process in general? That's probably the most important thing we do for our families. And I'll make a slight joke here. We're more psychiatrists and counselors than we are financial people to our families because they need that guidance. So the first thing we do is the kids uh, get a little older, let's say late teens, early 20s. We start involving them in family meetings with mom and dad. Now, we don't talk money, but we talk concepts. So very early on, as they start aging and start maturing, we start teaching them why mom and dad are putting these trusts together what the important pieces of their financial planning is. And we get the kids involved. And actually, we create a mission statement with children. So we spend a lot of time, and we have a pretty much a boilerplate that we use to start with, but it's all customized for our families. So we work with the families developing this mission statement and guide the family in goals and objectives. So the kids get a buy-on and how the charities are going to be treated down the road or philosophy of why mom and dad want to do certain things in these trusts or other issues. So they buy on to these concepts and actually they sign that agreement. All parties sign it so they're all on the same page. And we have a family meeting every year with our families to remind the kids as they get older, that they are responsible to take that next step when mom and dad aren't here. So we start bridging the responsibility to the kids on watching over this strategy. I'll give you a third party story. We have doctors in Phoenix that were sitting and doing a family meeting with the two sons and mom and dad. And the younger son said to his mom, hey, mom, you want me to get more involved in understanding investments? He calls me Uncle John. Uncle John's been working us for a long time, and and I want to learn more about investments. And you put a thousand dollars on my account every month, and I really appreciate that. But but that doesn't help me understand investments, and I want to learn more about investments. So she looked at me, and I looked at both of them, and I said, "That's a great question. Here's an idea." I said to the client, "I said that property you have in Scottsdale. What are we doing with that property?" And she goes, "I'm just renting it out, and really nothing." I said, why don't we take that property, put it in a trust for the benefit of the two boys, let them run the property, let them develop servicing of that property and teach them how to manage and how to collect rents and how to fix toilets or whatever it might be. Start teaching them how to run real estate. 
And they looked at she goes, that's a great idea. So my son's now in the middle of making this happen with the attorneys to make sure we set the trust up right, give the kids the ownership structure, or not ownership, but control structure inside the trust. Mom and dad always control it in the trust, believe it or not, because it's in a slide. So it, it's really a very interesting way, but the kids got so excited. What do we just do? If you think about it, we took generation one and generation two and connected them on one project at a time. So that's how we develop the synergies or these communications amongst the family members to start learning how to work together. And it's not easy sometimes, to be honest with you, but most certainly it's rewarding when you see it. Another story. I had a client up in Boston. You know the big dig in Boston? Well, I worked with an engineering firm that did that big dig or part of it. And the owner passed away and we were brought in to work with the family on the post side of the death of dad. The two boys are running the company. It's an Italian family. I'm Italian, so I could talk this. <laughs> Most Italian men, older men, generation from the 20s and 30s, gave all their assets to the boys. The daughter was left out. The daughter was working for a competitor, which is kind of interesting. So we had our family meeting, brought the kids in, all the advisors in, and I kicked off the meeting. And the daughter sat in the front, and she had her arms crossed. I don't know if you spoke in front of a group, but when someone crosses their arms and they're looking at you, they don't want to be there. They're not interested. They're not comfortable. This is just a waste of my time. But after I kicked off the meeting, I started to disclose all the issues that we were addressing and whatever. And she started to relax and take notes. So after my piece was over, she came up to me. She said, John, that was very, very good session you did because I never understood what my dad's vision was. He never really communicated that to me. And I really got a glimpse on where his focus was. And I really have earned a lot more respect from my dad. And I'm going to talk to my brothers and see if I get re-involved with the company. And the older son heard that and he winked at me. Guess who runs the company now and triple the revenues? The daughter. So when you look at these family meetings, if that meeting wasn't had, what would have happened? Something else would have happened. But because we had a very successful meeting, she got involved with it, got connected to her brothers, and now the company's more successful because families have three components. They have human capital, intellectual capital, and financial capital. And that's the world we live in. We try to balance all that family capital to make sure we move everything according to plan based on that mission statement or based on a legacy letter or whatever it might be to drive the success of the family. And we do this every single quarter with these families. We meet quarterly or we do WebExes or we do some kind of a connection to keep everybody on track. And we meet once a year with the kids to make sure everybody's up to speed, either adhering to the agreement of the mission statement or there's changes that they want to make. And it's fascinating to see when the kids get involved, how interested they are because they all want to learn. Most of the kids today don't understand money. They don't understand taxes. Don't understand how to balance a checkbook. Maybe that's pushing it. Today, the kids are a lot smarter than we were. But anyway, they get stressed with trying to figure all this out. So all the help they can get from mom and dad or from the advisor community to help them understand that they really appreciate it. So that's how we keep this thing moving and educate the kids. And it's fascinating. We have families been with us more than more than 10 years now. And we know their kids very well. And we work with the kids now. We do their wills and trusts. And they're having families. So it's a really interesting process that we go through. So we get very, very tight with the family. And one of the questions I ask a new family is, what advisor do you have on your team that if something happened to you, Mr. Patriarch, what would happen and who would you want your wife to walk down the road of life with that you can trust? And I get very interesting answers and none of them are really good. 
So a lot of these families don't have advisors that they can actually say, there's that person that I trust that can walk down the road of life with my wife and my children that I trust. So if you think about what this family office adventure is or this family CFO role, that's how I look at it. I want to be that organization or that structure that allows my families to have a trusted advisor team and my team and beyond my team. We're always enhancing what we do here with my team, but we're always going to be here to walk down the road of life for these families. As a matter of fact, we're in trust documents as the financial advisor because they always say to us, John and Michael, whatever you put together, my kids aren't going to understand and my family's not going to understand. You need to stay involved because you understand that you built it and you work with the team of advisors to do that. So it really makes it very sticky for us as a practice, to be honest with you, it makes it breathe and live. But the benefit to the family is tremendous. So that's the concept that we kind of live with. Hopefully that makes sense to you. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I'd like to hear your thoughts on, because you probably dealt a lot with this, is that often the case you have a founder and he or she has built a company or been successful. A lot of that drive came from hardship and struggle where people may have grown up poor or had difficulties and that lack of material wealth or having any money was really what kept them working 80 hour weeks or really pushed them forward. And so once many of these matriarchs and patriarchs become successful, I imagine one of the things they struggle with is saying, how do I have $100 million now? How do I raise these children and grandchildren So they're not just trust fund babies. They're not total just pieces of crap that have this silver spoon in their mouth. But how do I pass along our values and hunger in a world where hardship and struggle is probably largely absent? We hear that all the time. The generations that are here today, they haven't had that pain like my generation had. I grew up with a poor family. As a matter of fact, before I answer your question, let me back up and give you my story because that might help us with the next answers. My dad died when I was five. My mother had four of us in 34 months. I want you to think about that for a second. I'm a identical twin. We're preemie seven months. My brother's 10 months older. My sister was 10 months younger. Crazy. But that's what happened. So my dad died when I was five and my mom raised us until she remarried my stepdad when we were about 17. So I want you to think about that. We were poor. Everything I had, I worked for. I worked since I was 12 years old, cutting grass, you know, plowing driveways, whatever it was, I made money. So I was in that world. I, I had to do that to survive. I learned how to build that work ethic. So th- through that process, my mom married my stepdad. They had my younger brother, Anthony, when she was 44. So about 1981, 82, my mom came down with cancer. So did my stepdad. They died eight months apart from each other, and I inherited a 13-year-old brother. And they were school teachers. I was working for another company. I wasn't in this business, and I was a guardian, trustee, and executor of their estates. I had no idea what to do. My sister was co-executrix in the will, and that means that we're both partners in the decision process in their wills. At that time, both my mom and dad thought that was the best thing to do. Well, it worked out to be not the best thing to do. I'll make a long story short. One day on one of my mom's real bad sick days, she said to my sister, this house we live in, don't sell for less than a quarter of a million dollars. And my sister said, mom, you got it. 
Well, no one heard that conversation. So when they both passed, we were involved with probating the estate and there was no insurance to pay off the mortgage. The mortgage company was chasing us. Bills had to be paid. There was no money left over and everyone's trying to figure out what to do. And I was held with all that responsibility. So I said to my sister, we need to sell the house to pay off all these bills. And she said, mom said, if we're not going to get 250 for it, I'm not selling it. So I'll skip ahead. Three years later, we sold the house for exactly what it was comp for at 190 versus 250. And the attorneys walked off all the money. We got zero. And I didn't talk to my sister for 27 years. So what's the motto? It's not just about money. It's about the communication and what goes on in these families. So I got into this business because I swore that I would never let any of my families go through that. So my challenge is I have such a passion for teaching kids how to be responsible. You should be part of my meetings. I really get real passionate about teaching these kids and putting the onus on them that they need to be responsible. And yeah, they got this bucket of money. You can't hide from wealth. I mean, they know they're wealthy. They're always going to know that. But if they understand why the wealth is being boxed off and why it's being asset protected, but they have access to it, that whole concept changes to them. In most cases, they say, I don't have car blanche. I have to earn the right to get that money out. Or if I do borrow money, I got to pay it back. Or whatever it is, that's the strategy. So we try to build that in our model. And quite frankly, it works really well with us. Now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I don't know what that's going to look like. But at least you give it a good shot to at least put effort into teaching the children or the kids how to be responsible for this money to prevent that trust baby kind of a concept. But to be honest with you, it's a hard road to hoe because some kids say, listen, I'm, you know, I'm worth a lot of money and I can go in and the trustees real kind that I could go anything I need to live. But it's a challenge. I'm not going to disagree with those families. It's definitely a challenge. But we work real hard to prevent that as we build a relationship with the children or the third generation in some cases. Food for thought. No easy answers. But I think being honest and having the conversations already puts most families infinitely ahead of the ones that just ignore it. And so many parents we talk to that are wealthy, they want to hide it from the children and the children say, are we rich? Do we have money? And the parents often don't want to have those discussions. Yeah, that's a mistake from my part because the kids know. I mean, we work with clients right now on the West Coast that they live in this big house in Lake Tahoe and they have a very successful company and they had the same conversation with my son and I. I said, guys, you can't hide it. <laughs> you live in a beautiful house on a lake, <laughs> Lake Tahoe, and you have all these cars. I mean, they know you're rich. How you teach them responsibility is the next step in those values. And they're a very value-oriented family, and it works really well with them. And they have two very mature kids, and they get it, and they know that they're going to be taken care of. But they're not. A, we can see they're not abusive at all, and they're really excited about being involved with these decisions as time goes on. Because what we're doing with that family example, we're buying real estate with the kids in these trusts. So the kids are now out looking for real estate. They're doing their research, and they're getting involved with helping that wealth being created, keep it being created or taking that wealth and maximizing it or being involved with the success of that wealth. So that's the best way to teach these kids to be involved versus sitting on a couch playing video games and waiting for a check. So that's how we kind of handle that. As we're slowly winding down the last days, not only of 2019, but also this decade, it's crazy to say, I'm not prepared to ready to say 2020 yet. But one of the things that you offer value add is thinking about and planning. I'll leave this open-ended to you. So as, as the year is kind of ending, are there any thoughts that you'd like to pass along when it comes to either taxes? Year end is often a time for people to take 
stock of what's gone on in the past year or years and take an eye to the future and gaze towards the horizon? Or are there any things that people should be thinking about as 2020 comes along that may or may not be on their mind? What we typically advise our families to do, and we work with them in this regard, is sit with their tax professionals before you're in. Because I'll tell you what we find most cases. We come across, and again, I don't want to offend anybody, we come across CPAs, either tax preparers or tax planners. We find most of them are tax preparers. And they do your tax return and they run your numbers and they do certain things. And sometime in February, March, they say, I'm finishing up your tax return and you owe another $100,000 in taxes. We try to avoid that conversation by doing tax planning before year end because there are things that organizations, companies can do to defer tax, to swap tax out, buy more equipment before year end, getting higher deductions of certain strategies. There are things that they can do that can help. Now, Two of the strategies we look at, it's one that's just brand new under the new tax code. It's called opportunity zones. You might have heard about them, but President Trump signed into bill the ability for states to look at certain areas of the state and make them opportunity zones for development. And how the program works is that you can take a gain. Let's assume you had a investment gain in your portfolio or you sold your company or you sold an asset that had a gain in it. You could roll that gain into this opportunity zone, which is a real estate structure, and you can defer that gain for up to seven years and get a discount on the gain itself by up to 15%, but you have to do it before 2019 ends. So you get that 50% discount. So if your gain was a million, your gain is now 850. So you get a nice tax break doing that. But you have to pay the tax at that seventh year, but it's discounted a little bit. But if you hold that real estate for 10 years and beyond, all the gains in that property or that real estate are exempt from capital gains 100%. So why they're doing this, which I think is a wonderful idea, they're taking these poor areas of states, inner cities, whatever, and they're forcing development into these areas to create jobs, create opportunity for people that live there or to drive business owners to come into those areas to build out their enterprises. So I think it's a wonderful idea. Most people haven't heard about it because it's happened in 2017 and people are running around in 2018 trying to figure out how they're going to do it. But there's a lot of opportunity in that regard. So if you go back to your tax advisor, if you have a big gain this year, you might want to look at that strategy to take advantage of that discount and the gain calculation and also eliminating it after 10 years. That's a long-term strategy, but most certainly that's one of them. Yeah. And we've talked about a few times on this podcast. Have you started to allocate or your clients started to use that strategy either through individual investments or through funds? We're looking at two groups now that are mature real estate developers. Now, what I mean by that is there's a lot of people we're starting to see out there that are all of a sudden building real estate companies to get into these opportunity zones. I would tell people to be weary of that because it's more complex than you think. But there are companies that are developers and been developers for 30 years in these areas, and they just happen to build a building in an opportunity zone. It just happened to be anointed. So they already have very successful track records, and they now have a tax benefit because the property has already been built. It's already in a zone. So I would look more towards those particular companies. There's a few of them out there. And so we just had a conference in Vail, Colorado for our families. Every year we do a family office conference. We bring our families in. We bring top speakers in on key topics. Matter of fact, this is a tax symposium. 
<laughs> so it was very interesting. And I'll share some of the ideas in a second. But basically, one of the speakers was a speaker from a company that offered these opportunity zones, a big developer. So the clients were very interested. They're looking into it, but they have a window for this year. But they can still do it next year. You get less of that discount on the capital gain after the seventh year, but you can still do it in 2020. So it's an interesting program, but there are some great companies out there doing it. Have been doing it for thirty years, and those are the companies that I would suggest clients look into. And go to your tax advisor. Yeah, uh, good advice. As we kind of think about year end too, there's probably a lot of people listening to this that say, "Man, I clearly don't have my act together. I need to go sit down with a fiduciary and kind of whether it's go through a, a full audit or at least get their act together in general." And so, a question for you is: Are there any main kind of gaping holes that you consistently see that the majority of people that come to you, you say, look, this is the one that these two things, these three things that just consistently people do wrong or forget about or really need to get done yesterday. Is there anything in general that you think comes to the front of your mind? There's two sides of that. If you're a W-2 employee working for a company, there's different things going on versus if you're on your own company there's a lot more opportunities you have to reduce your taxes. Let's go to W-2 employee. We see a weakness in some of their strategies. They don't max fund their 401k plans. For some reason, they don't max fund it. They don't pay attention to it. And, and some of them even don't even invest into it and they lose their match, which is free money. I don't know why people would lose that, but that's one weakness I see on the W-2 side. Other than that, it's really under the new tax code. You get that credit now, 24000 bucks, and it's really some ability to deduct your mortgage interest and your taxes. So it's really what state you're in. It's really, you should sit down with your CPA and say, what options do I have before you have to take advantage of all these loose things that are going on? So the first thing I would tell you to, to do is go see your CPA. On the business side, there's a lot of things a business owner can do that they might not be aware of. And one of the areas that we look at people are usually not familiar with it. It's called the 831B election. Are you familiar with that, Matt? What that is? Let's hear it. An 831B election is under the tax code in the late 70s. The Congress put in place the ability for small business owners to create their own insurance company. Now, what I mean by that is they can run their own risk, their enterprise risk. So because the Congress is saying these large insurance companies are charging you big premiums, to manage your risk and we want to give you an advantage small business owner and you could fund your own risk and basically what happens is this let's start with your regular program you have property casualty coverages you want to insure your building and your premiums ten thousand dollars a year to insure your building and you send that check to an insurance company let's say aig for a second aig gets your ten thousand dollar premium puts it in a pool with everybody else who's insuring their buildings and that pool sits there for that year based on your policy year and it pays claims. But what happens is if your building doesn't burn down, you don't get your $10,000 back, do you? That's called underwriting profits for an insurance company. And these property and casualty companies have a huge underwriting profit on their programs. That's why people don't like insurance companies, but they know how to do it. And that's how they structure it. So what Congress did allowed under this 831B election to allow you to insure risk, your enterprise risk in your company. Now that's risk like cyber risk. That's risk like loss of key customers, reputational risk, employment practices, legal defense. If you're a doctor, loss of hospital privileges, you can insure that risk. You typically don't insure that 
because why would you want to pay a premium if you're not going to get it back? Running your own insurance company, if you put those premiums in your own insurance company and through that year it sits in a pool and it's got to be done right, I talked about it in a second, but it's got to sit in this pool. At the end of the year, if there's no claims against your policies, you get your premium back minus expenses and claims on that pool. So if you put a dollar in, you might get 80 cents back that following year and you do it again. So it's a way to build a risk management portfolio. By the way, it's risk management first. You got to ensure your risk because look at our industry. If someone put on the web that Copper Beach did X and it wasn't true and people read it, how would that hurt Copper Beach? Tremendous. So I have a policy that protects that in my insurance company that I can put claims in against that exposure from my pool, from that pool, and it could pay half my claim. So basically, it's a way to, to manage your enterprise risk more efficiently. But let me warn you, 831B election has been scrutinized by the IRS, and to this day, they're still scrutinizing it because it's got to be done right. So if you look at this strategy, work with your tax advisors and work with the organization that does it right. Now, there's a structure out of Puerto Rico that's a different design. That's the one that we're in because I have my own, they call the segregated asset plan. It's not a captive. It's not an 831B captive. It's totally different. And again, I won't get into the weeds, but I have one that's in Puerto Rico as a domicile. Now, everyone gets scared about, well, is in Puerto Rico out of business? That's nothing to do with Puerto Rico. It's a domicile issue. They have a very favorable structure for these type of private insurance companies that allows me to do that. But when you make a contribution to this insurance company, you get an income tax deduction. So we're working with a client now, actually, who has a million-dollar income coming into him. It's an S-corporation. Based on his risk profile, he's able to put $200,000 away in his insurance company. So now instead of making a million, he's making eight. So I just saved him $80,000 in taxes, whatever the tax is. And he's now put a war chest away in this insurance structure that over time can build net worth or assets for the business and for the family. And it's all favored by the IRS under the rules if you do it right. I'm just going to warn you, you have to do it right because they are looking at these very, very closely. But that's one aspect. There's also some programs like Keyman Designs. There's something called a restricted property trust. Now, again, I won't get into the weeds, but there's a way you can put a Keyman policy, life insurance policy in place for your key executives in your company and get a deduction on that premium. Now, it's gone through a review of the IRS and they're okay with it. Again, you got to design it right. But these kind of programs exist that people can take advantage of, but you got to go to your tax advisor and get that advice. There's also things called environmental easements. And these are structures, let's say there's a farmland in Montana and the client, the family owns it and it's 500 acres and it's worth $50 million. Well, what's the estate tax problem if mom and dad were to die? There's a tax exposure on it. So the kids only have this asset of land to sell and they have to liquidate, sell off the land to pay the tax, which is not what the government wants everybody to do with their land. They want us to keep farming the land. So they allow now this land to be put in this charitable structure. It's called this easement where they can donate this land to this charitable structure and they can never sell that land. It's got to stay in this particular structure. You get a charitable write-off on the contribution of that asset into this particular category. So there are different ways you can really get some income tax deduction with charitable planning, with easement structures, to restricted property trusts, 
private insurance companies. And there's a few other things you could look at potentially that can help you depending on what company you have and what other deductions you get. But it's most certainly you need to go talk to your tax advisors before year end. And I typically do it in October, November, this time of year to force our clients to sit down and say, okay, what do we have this year to deal with? I hope that answered some of your questions. No, it's great because it illustrates a really important point that we talk a lot about to our listeners. And most people want to spend all day focusing on the sexy side of our world, which is the investing side. And they worry about what's the Fed doing? What about Turkey? What about Trump? What about stocks are expensive? How much should I have in gold? What about crypto? And putting together their asset allocation, trying to optimize it, when in reality, the tax side of the equation absolutely dwarfs, in many cases, almost everything else you could do on the investment or expense ratios. Everyone's at least rightfully so and wonderfully focused on expenses and commissions and everything in today's day and age. But the tax alpha is probably the most significant piece that people... But it's complicated. It's not fun. And it's boring, probably in many ways, except for you and I. (laughs) We like it. But I think it's a really important piece that most people just don't spend any time on. Yeah, we do our audits. We audit everything, as I said earlier. One of the things we audit is their investment account. Again, a non-IRA. It's a non-qualified account with a broker. And we look at it and we look at the tax efficiencies. And nine out of 10 times, there's not one. (laughs) So I had a client that he had a $300,000 gain in his portfolio. And he said, yeah, my broker did a great job last year. Yeah, he did. But what did you keep? He looked at me and he said, I'm not sure if I understand it. Well, what were your fees? What was your tax cost? And what was inflation? What did you keep? And he went, I don't know. And I did the calculation for him and almost fell off the chair. And the biggest piece, as you just pointed out, is the tax piece. They don't realize that they could tax manage that account, still get growth, but not do a 1099 from your broker's success that year and give 35 to 40 percent. If you live in California, <laughs> like you guys do, I don't know how you live there with your tax. New Jersey is not much better, by the way. But you're always in a 40 to 50 percent tax bracket. Why would you do that? It's crazy. It's nuts. So you're right. Taxes is a very intricate part. And I usually get clients say, well, he's charging me a point. Don't worry about the point he's charging. Worry about the 35 points that you're paying in taxes. Forget that other point. If he's doing his good job and making it tax efficient, he's worth his weight in gold. And that's what you should be looking at. And we, so we educate them on things they should be paying attention to, not things that they have no control over, like the markets and what the economy is doing and what's the Fed doing. They have no control over that stuff. So worry about stuff you can control, not stuff you can't control. So you're absolutely right, man. These guys that we deal with, they get so focused on how my portfolio do this year. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You have so much wealth or you have so much success. If you got 5%, you'll still be successful. What are you worried about the markets for? That's my client base. I mean, they're happy with 5 or 6% rate of return, which is, you and I both know, that's not a challenge you get in a down market. So the people that are trying to grow their assets and they're nervous about not having enough, they need to look at different structures. Like we look at annuities for that structure. I'm sure you're familiar with what income strategy and these annuity structures. People aren't familiar with that it's like ensuring your income is one of the most powerful things you could do through these annuities. And people say, oh, they cost too much and they're expensive. Uh, yeah, but no one else can guarantee your income for your lifetime. It's like a pension plan your grandfather had. As long as you're alive, you get a check. These act the same way. So why don't you have your own personal program that allows you to ensure your income? And they get educated. They go, you know what? I didn't think about that. I didn't know that product existed. So you teach them how to think differently about securing the risk that they have in those type of discussions around their investment portfolios. 
I think it's interesting. We have actually looked into the business of launching some annuities. I think there's opportunity as providers to have a modern equivalent of the personal pension because <laughs> half of our listeners are listening. They're just like, what's a pension? I don't know what that is. <laughs> they don't really exist anymore. But we've said this a lot on the podcast. You know, I actually don't think I'm probably the only person I know that believes this, but I actually don't think your asset allocation matters a whole lot as long as you have the main ingredients and implement it thoughtfully. But it's so many of the other things around it, whether it's the taxes, whether it's people just mucking it up, whether it's all these other implementation issues, I think they're more important. I don't know about you listeners, but I'm ready for an audit. I feel like I need to <laughs> I need to call you up and send you all my docs and then get my house in order. John, we could spend all day talking about these topics and actually would love to have you back to get in very specific. I mean, I feel like each one of these items we talked about today, we could do an entire show on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Where can people find more? If they want to follow your writings, we'll post all these links on the show notes, mebfaber.com forward slash podcast listeners. But they want to find out more about your business, about your podcast, about your writings. Where do they go? Yeah, go to our website. It's the easiest. Our podcasts are on there and white papers. It's Copper Beach. And that's B-E-C-H-F-G.com. And you can look at our website and download anything you need to download or contact us if you're interested in contacting us. John, I almost forgot we end the podcast with asking a consistent question. And feel free to take it any which direction you want. But uh, if you look back over your career, over the decades, you personally, this could be with your company, what's been your most memorable investment over time? Good, bad, in between? First thing comes to mind? Anything come to mind? Investment into my son who's now my succession to the practice. That's the best decision I made. He's a wonderful young guy. A young guy, he's 36 years old, but he's a brilliant technician. And working side by side with your son is, I can't tell you, people that work with their kids, it's amazing. And we haven't fought for 11 years on anything. He pushes me occasionally, but we really haven't had any dry out fights and he's wonderful to work with and, and my team here. I've got a wonderful staff. I'm so thankful that I have a, a group of people that care about my vision and are, are part of that. And I can't say any more than other than I'm still passionate what I do. I'm 67 years old this year and I'm still driving, still running my business and I won't quit. Beautiful way to end this, John. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Listeners will post show note links. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Breaker, anywhere good podcasts are found. Shoot us some feedback. If you got any suggestions, complaints, anything else, questions, add to the mailbag, feedback at themebfavorshow.com. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. The following is a required disclaimer from today's guest. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Security is offered through American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc., a member of FINRA SIPC Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor, Copper Beach, is unaffiliated entity of APFS and APA. Any opinions expressed in this forum are not the opinion or view of American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc., APFS or American Portfolios Advisors Incorporated APA and have not been reviewed by the firm or the completeness for accuracy. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice or comments 
Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not need to constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed. They involve risk and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors. These instances may not be representative of other clients. There is no assurance or experience will be similar and no assurance of financial success. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions.